Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus $30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate. Hello and what's going on? This is your host Gabe Lezris, the Managing Madrid Podcast, uh, and uh, I'm joined today for your first actual during the World Cup podcast by Om Arvind Om. Happy Father's Day! I mean, I don't think either of us are fathers, but Happy Father's Day to Keon, I guess. Yep, he's taking a day off, so it's just going to be you and me. And I hope I hope that's good enough for you guys who are listening. Um, I'm certainly excited to talk about the World Cup for the first time on this podcast. So let's get going. Hell yeah, let's do it. I mean, I um, and just at the top of the show, I can't express enough how uh, deeply, deeply morally conflicted I am about the World Cup because, oh, um, I love the World Cup. I love I have this has just been such an incredibly fun couple of days already. And I just I know it's like a whole month of just nonstop every day I get to wake up and watch awesome football. So like, it's really hard. It's really hard because I'm incredibly conflicted about it. (laughs) Yeah, I feel you. I feel you completely. Um, There's, there's on a personal level, I'm enjoying this a lot, but there are very obvious issues here with hosting the world cup in Russia that we are definitely going to touch on. I don't feel uh, journalism at large has done the greatest job in doing that. So we definitely would have to touch on that today. Yeah, it's something will. we can't ignore. It's 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 part of the World Cup. Yeah. So we'll we'll get into that later in the show. Um, but there's a reason that we're both feeling very morally conflicted about it. But before that, we get to talk about the actual games, which is going to be a very very fun. Just a quick run through. Um, so we're recording this on after the games that were played on Sunday. Uh, so we, if you're if you're at, you know expecting to hear uh, commentary about any of the games that c- occurred on Monday, you got your your SOL. Um, but up until then, we've got a bunch of the, we've got a bunch of awesome stuff to talk about. Lots of Real Madrid important stuff. Obviously, I think um, the most Real Madrid, you know, the, and and another thing I'm going to do is at the end of this show, I'm going to um, I'm going to cut in the uh, uh, little bit um, about five minutes or so. I was I so. Just in case you're a Managing Madrid podcast listener in England or someone who likes to listen to my shitty analysis, you can pop on. I'm doing um, uh, uh, work as a Real Madrid and Spain correspondent for Love Sport Radio in London. So I'm going to I'm gonna drop in some of the audio from that. I talked a little bit about Hierro, a little bit about Cristiano Ronaldo and all that. Obviously, though, um, I think the first and most important thing as Madrid fans to talk about, we got to talk about Spain-Portugal. Oh, what a game that was. I think that oh, might man. have been the best World Cup game I've ever watched. I mean, I haven't watched too many World Cups. The first one I watched was the 2010 World Cup. But out of all the games I've watched since then, in my opinion, this was the best one I ever saw yeah. on so many levels. Tactically, it was very intriguing. 
Um, it obviously wasn't up to club level as you would expect, but it was still of, of, of high quality for, for the international stage. You know, they're very interesting tactical battles. The drama was insane. You know, the player performances, the, the passion yes. of the fans oh. I could feel coming through. It was it was the World Cup game we all deserved um, because the ones before that were kind of underwhelming. And I feel like this one really kicked the World Cup off. Yeah, I, I mean, it's the kind of game where if you have American kind of shithead friends who don't understand soccer and, and talk about how it sucks and it's boring, you know, if, if you make them watch this game and they still say that shit, then, you know, you, you're never going to convince them literally. Like, this is, <laughs> this is the definitional soccer game. Like, how, like, how do you watch this game and not like this sport? That's my question after after all this. And you know, it it it's the kind of game where uh, at the end of the match, you know, I so we actually kind of uh, fall on different sides of who we were rooting for in the match. Obviously, because I'm Spanish, I was rooting for um, from for La Selección, and uh, Om, you are uh, a Portugal fan. And I think at the end of the match, the feeling from both sides, at least. Um, for me, it was like that, that Portugal felt pretty good about the way the match had ended. Spain was feeling a little bit down. But I think both both teams, uh, and especially the Real Madrid players who make up the core of both teams, <laughs> uh, have a lot to be pleased with after that draw. Absolutely. I think Spain has a real reason to, to feel optimistic about their chances in this World Cup, especially after seeing how Germany and Brazil performed in their first games. And obviously a draw is disappointing, but if we're being honest, if De Gea plays how any you know normal average goalkeeper would, Portugal aren't winning that game because they simply didn't have enough chances. And if they can avoid facing players that put in goat performances, you know I think they'll be pretty good because that's what it was. It was the combination of a horrible mistake from De Gea and Ronaldo being Ronaldo, and I I I. I don't think that 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 combination of, of, of factors will, will occur too many times throughout the tournament for Spain. I mean, I'm not saying obviously they're just going to go on and win now, but what I saw from them on the pitch was extremely impressive. Yeah. So Portugal came out in a very organized fashion, more organized than I'm used to seeing because I think Portugal's defensive organization tends to be overrated a little bit. But when they when they played Spain, it was actually very, very good. Obviously, your usual compact 4-4-2 block in the middle of the pitch looking to cut out all spaces. And, and what Portugal did was they man-marked um, Spain's midfielders with their, with, with, their, with their four across the middle and let Busquets drop in between the CBs and didn't bother him. So they, they were really good in the first 10 minutes or so of, of blocking off all the passing right. lanes and putting pressure on all the playmakers. And Spain, after a while, they just began to figure it out on the fly. And that's what's most impressive, to break down an organized defensive block and struggle at first and then figure out how to get past it, that is an invaluable tactic, especially in international football. And Spain did it by putting extreme emphasis on the left wing. So everyone started to rotate to that, to, to exploit Portugal's man-marking tactics and essentially overload the left. So you had David Silva moving all the way over from the right wing into the left half space. You had Koke coming from over there. You had Diego Costa running into the left channel. And so Portugal's... Um, Portugal's midfielders on the on their left side couldn't come over and track those players because it would have ruined their shape. So Spain essentially had free reign through the left. The combination play was excellent, and there were several times where they were they were pretty unlucky where they didn't get a shot off or the shot just missed a post or something like that. And the way they just solved it on the fly, you just felt 
it, it was not that Portugal was playing badly. It was just that Spain was too good. And that's that that's kind of best thing you can say about a team. At the end of the day, it was Ronaldo that saved Portugal. And I guess that's that's why Portugal can also feel good because they put in a competent performance and that that's what the most they yeah. can do and they have to hope Ronaldo can take them over the line. And, and if Ronaldo is in the kind of form you have to feel good about you it. Do. You have to feel and good about that. I was I was thinking during the match about how you're watching this Spain team that really was executing all of the you know, all the things that Spain was worried about, right, going into this match. They executed right. They had they had goal scoring. They Diego Costa actually put in a performance that he's never put in for Spain before. This was, oh, was yeah. the kind of vintage Costa performance. Really playing as that not target man nine. The you know, the the back to the goal kind of holding the ball, distributing, but also able to turn around and fire and bully people off the ball. It was exactly the type of player that Spain was hoping for when they convinced him to join the team uh, when he was considering which side to join. And, uh, you know, if, if, if he if that's a common occurrence for Spain for the rest of the tournament, if he continues to play at that level, then I think that's a huge addition for Spain moving forward. I mean, you know, but at the same time, I think, you know, you have to feel really good for Portugal because at the same time as everything was kind of finally being fixed for Spain, Portugal came out and played a really competent team, didn't didn't back down with their block. They took the lead a couple times and, you know, they they were they were playing with. Uh, uh, you know, really competent defensive organization, and then you know, relying on their uh, counterattacking trio, really duo of of Gonzalo Guedes and Cristiano Ronaldo. And interestingly, um, for me, I thought the Guedes uh, didn't actually perform the way I expected him to. And I, if you're Portugal, you can expect him to kind of improve through the tournament. And if that's so, I actually, I mean. No one thought Portugal would make a deep run in the Euro Cup, except for like you and me and a couple other people who were saying, "Look, th- this this team, if you can defend competently and then take your chances when you have them, you can make a run in any cup competition." I think Portugal has to be feeling pretty good about their chances moving forward, especially considering they didn't even weren't even firing on all cylinders on attack. Like I think there was a, this incredible moment when. Uh, Ronaldo kind of squared this ball to Guedes, who didn't, you know, he didn't, he had a, he had a real attempt to, sh- you know, he could he could have shot, and instead of you know just taking it uh, first touch, he decided to take a touch and 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 got the ball stolen. It was a, you know, you got to feel like Portugal could have executed even better, and they still scored three goals. Yeah, there was. It must be mentioned that in the pro in in, in that span of time when Spain was trying to figure out how to get themselves together after Ronaldo scored the penalty. Guedes blew, like you said, a huge chance on the counterattack. And I just want to quickly mention, Ronaldo was really fucking fast on that play. I posted a gift he earlier on He still has it, baby. <laughs> yeah, I, he, he outpaced Guedes, who was going at full tilt. I mean, Guedes is a fast player. He is fast, and Ronaldo outpaced him like it was nothing And he, before scoring the ball over to him. I mean, there was that period, that 10-minute period where Spain was trying to figure it out where Portugal could have killed off the game. Yeah. And it was disappointing from my perspective that they didn't. But there's promise there going forward. And I actually believe this Portugal team is better than the one that played in, in, yeah. in Euro 2016 because the players they have are more mature. Yeah. They're... They're, being defending champions gives you a certain amount of experience. I believe Ronaldo has a new level of belief now in this team. And I I wouldn't say they're, this makes them favorites for the World Cup or anything, but I would say they're better prepared to make a deep run than they were in Euro 2016. Yeah. So 
I think a semifinals appearance is pretty possible. I think quarterfinals is more likely, but I would not be surprised to see Ronaldo take this team to the semifinals. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be shocked either, especially if everything kind of continues to just get a little bit more tight on defense and if uh Guedes kind of grows into the tournament, which one hopes one hopes he will because you know, having watched him all season at Valencia, we we know how dangerous and 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 lethal he can be i mean he was absolutely the most dangerous player for valencia when they played against real madrid and you know that was against a a team that was trying their best to shut him down that was a club team right and so he was he was i mean he put on a he put on a show and i i i think that the the maybe the stage got to him a little bit uh, where you know, he finally yeah. realized, like, this is my big, big moment um, in front of a global audience to announce myself. And, I mean, I think that's totally reasonable. And he has three, uh, two more games in the group stage. Um, obviously, Portugal needs to get a result against these two other teams. But, you know, one hopes that that's not going to be super hard for them. And uh, he'll have time to grow into himself as they head, head forward into the knockout stages. Yep, I, I can't disagree with anything you said there. Uh, I will also add that in terms of the Spain, I think um, so. I talked a little bit on on the radio in uh, uh, you know today, no, yesterday about that, and I, I will say that I think that what Spain needs to needs to really work on and and think a little bit, you know, think through a little bit is is how they want to uh, and, and how they want to make their substitutions. So, for example, like. I didn't think that Diego Costa was gassed when Iago Aspas came on, and I was a little bit surprised that um, because he was such a such a force holding the ball, right? You know, it, it's those things where Spain has never been a team that really can whack the ball upfield and expect anyone to get on the end of it and and really hold it. They didn't ever have that kind of player until Diego Costa, until like maybe Morata sort of has that that ability. But taking him off removes the kind of danger when Spain makes a clearance right out of the back. And I thought that was a complicated decision by Hierro. And, you know, on some level, right, um, uh, this is a, this this Spain team is a machine that sort of runs on its own, and you just point it in one direction and kind of let it go. The coach's decisions really in this at this point really only come to who starts and uh, mm-hmm. Who comes off? And I thought that Hierro sort of made some mistakes on both ends. I'm not sure, for example, that I would have started Nacho on the right wing. Obviously, I love Nacho, but uh, Lopetegui had been kind of telegraphing that his plan was to start Odriozola uh, on that right way on that right back position. Uh, and I wouldn't have taken off Costa as early. So I. On the two times that I think really we can question uh, Hierro's decision making, I think I think that's that he may have come off a little lacking, but hopefully he learns a little bit from from those decisions. And obviously Nacho actually ended up completing a pretty solid game uh, mm-hmm. with that beautiful goal that he scored. But I mean, it was a very silly penalty and a very silly tra- uh, challenge from him on on Ronaldo. Yeah, and. I think that's the only thing I'd be concerned about if I was a Spain fan because essentially what Hierro was doing was he was just implementing Lopetegui's blueprint. He wasn't changing anything that the previous manager did. It's, they basically went in with the same exact same tactics that they've had for the for the past year or so and and it was Spain that kind of adapted on the fly and Hiro just let it happen. Right. So the only issue would be if Hiro has to make some kind of in-game change, whether that's a substitution or he has to change something up tactically, 
that's when I'd be concerned because I really have no idea about yeah. Yeto's managing ability and I don't know if he would be competent in doing that. So you've kind of got to hope that plan A always works for Spain and that if a little hitch comes, the team can just work it out themselves. Yeah. And I'm fairly confident they can, given the experience and technical quality and tactical intelligence on the field, but there's always a risk it doesn't because that's the coach's job at the end of the day. Yeah. And if it does, I think that's where Spain could be caught out. Yeah, I agree. Um, now, moving on to some of the other games, though, uh, that obviously Spain-Portugal so far is a match of the tournament. I mean, so far, all of the main contenders have wildly disappointed. I mean, we'll have to see how Belgium, England, and some of the other big names play uh, in their first match. But just like moving forward in this tournament, we've seen, um, I mean, Argentina starring uh, Lionel Messi just brutally choked to a very compact, well-defended... <laughs> hey, they are. And they, they... I mean, Iceland benefits from some luck. Oh, they I was benefited. laughing at Messi. I wasn't laughing at Iceland. Okay. <laughs> they are. Iceland... I I mean, a lot of people who didn't watch the Euro Cup just kind of dismissed Iceland. But, I mean, my my gut was telling me that they had a 1-1 draw in them against... Arge or, like, a scoring draw in them against Argentina. I didn't predict it. I predicted a one nothing to Argentina. But one nothing against Iceland would have been a really still a good result for Iceland. And, you know, Iceland really put up a fight and they really scared uh, that Argentine team. And they, I think they really got into Messi's head for whatever reason. You know, I don't know if there's ever been, and maybe, maybe the best comparison for Messi is actually, and this is something that I, I'm going to float for the first time ever on this podcast. Maybe the best comparison for Messi because uh, is, is someone like Shaq in that, I've never seen someone be this good at this sport in all a lot of like almost every yeah, aspect of this yeah. sport, but so horribly like below average at free throws and penalties. Fucking yeah. free throws and penalty. Like, how is that possible? Like, the, I think like, Messi's missed his last five out of his last ten penalties. I think I what I heard was it it was a uh, 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 four out of his last seven, but whatever. It's basically the same percentage, and yeah. like that is crazy low. It's crazy low. Uh, it just goes to show that, I don't know, uh, maybe maybe having Penaldo on your team is a good thing. Um, I mean, it's penalties are hard, especially in pressure situations like that. I mean, we saw Ronaldo take it without hesitation, and he put it away. I think it's gotten kind of in Messi's head. He's messed quite a few high-profile penalties now uh, over the course of his career, kind of starting against Chelsea in the Champions League semifinals. But I don't think we should over-exaggerate it either. Ronaldo also no, right. missed a penalty versus Iceland in Euro 2016. Um, I mean, it's. I mean, I'm not gonna stop laughing now. I mean, I, you don't have that many chances to get to get your banter in when when Messi's an opposing player, right? Or, or, or so you know, have your fun now. But I would definitely not count him out. There's still two more games. They picked up a draw. It's not. A, it's not the end of the world. But things definitely aren't looking the greatest for Argentina. I'm not sure San Paoli was the best coach for this team because his style doesn't fit the personnel. I mean, he wants to play an intense, high-pressing game with a bunch of old players in midfield. Um, so, yeah, it's... I wouldn't... I would... I'm pretty uncertain about Argentina. I mean, it could go either way. Messi could lift them. You know, Aguero stepped up in a big way in, in the group stage game with his goal. They, they still have quality individuals on offense who can carry them. But as a system, they are, they are extremely poor. And... You know, that doesn't necessarily bode well for them. No. Uh, in terms of other kind of high, higher profile um, Real Madrid players, 
Uh, we saw, obviously, Ashraf playing from Morocco in their really gut-wrenching loss to Iran. Um, I don't have anything to say about that game um, other than he was in it. And um, Iran uh, won the game on a Morocco own goal in minute 93, which is one of the most upsetting sentences that I think you can say as a fan, <laughs> as an it's analyst. Like, Absolutely brutal. Oh, um, in terms of other Madrid players, uh, let's let's just quickly. I mean, let's just jump ahead to you know just some of the big the, some of the big boys. We've got um, Rafa Varane playing for France, a France side that um, benefited from the first ever uh, VAR use in a World Cup that gave them a penalty, and it it was in fact a penalty. Griezmann slotted at home. France beat Argent or beat uh, excuse me Australia two to one with a uh, Paul Pogba winner in the last little bit of time. Um, Varane, obviously, is still fantastic. Uh, and I think that, that the next big game for in terms of Real Madrid, we're all today, which is basically Kaylor Navas in the morning. Um, uh, you know, Costa Rica really had... Like, I feel like Costa Rica was the better side playing against Serbia, but Serbia had a very brilliant uh, free kick strike that Kaylor could do nothing about. Um, and they lost one nothing. Just couldn't break down that Serbian defense. Um, and then we had, I think, one of the upsets, probably the upset of the tournament so far, which was Mexico one, Germany zero. We had uh, former Madrid players Kadira and Özil. Uh, and then, I mean, let's talk a little bit about Tony. Tony Kroos uh, playing an instrumental role for his German side. But I think, um, I think. You know, as we were talking before we started recording, I'm not sure he was particularly, you know, as you know, particularly used well. Yeah, so this was a very much a case of of Germany having an obvious tactical flaw that Mexico took. Uh, I don't want to say good advantage of because they did blow a ton of counterattacking opportunities, but the end, at the end of the day, they did take advantage of it, and it was essentially this: po- po- Germany went in with a Kedira cross midfield double pivot and Ozil ahead of them and they, they had patient very structured possession play mainly in the right side of the field and they tried to break down Mexico that way and Mexico were very aggressive in the pressing on all all areas of the field not allowing Germany to ever be comfortable and so obviously that led to losses of possession and so in in, in what's basically been a pattern for many years now Germany tried to counter press and win the ball back instantly and they were actually well set up to do it it's just that Kroos, Kedira, that midfield was just far too slow. So Mexico were beating those players one-on-one, running in behind them, and Kroos was left in the dust four or five times, and they were running straight at the German defense. And it's not like Germany have very fast center backs and Hummels and Boateng either. And so Mexico had tons and tons of counter-attacking opportunities. And the German coach never really responded to it. I mean, the the only substitution he made that affected that midfield was taking off Kedira for Royce, which left Kroos as the only central midfielder in the squad. And uh, at the end of the day, they came away with a 1-0 loss. So I think Kroos actually played a pretty decent role in possession. I think Mexico did a pretty good job of shutting him down and that Kroos wasn't able to be, you know, as as influential in the way you expect him. I mean, he was still pretty good. He was involved, but he wasn't necessarily making the most decisive plays in the way that you expect. And then he was burned on the counter time and time again. And I think this is a weakness Germany has in, in personnel. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that many midfielders they have that could solve that problem. I mean, Gundogan isn't that mobile. Right. I mean, people people were talking about Goretzka. I guess he is more mobile. He but is. He, 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 but he... 
his offensive is, is he as good offensively? I mean, Kadira is really the only box to box player they have, and you and he's not even. Field. And Kadira is still like he's definitely has lost not just one but like five or six steps since he yeah, was yeah after a key multiple player. injuries right. So I think the only way to solve this, in my opinion, is structurally so move away from the double pivot yeah. and have a three man midfield. Yep. So you have two central midfielders guarding the half space yep. and a defensive midfielder when they get behind. Yep. But you know, let's see, let's see what he does because this is a big problem and Mexico have exposed it in the first game. So I'd be surprised if other teams didn't attempt to do the same. Yeah, thing. Well, I mean, we'll see because like fundamentally, what we have in in the Germany-Mexico group it is one of the weaker groups outside of them. South Korea, not a great squad, but they do have some pace in, in Sun, a couple other players, and then Sweden, who are more of a kind of built the kind of team identity of being more of a compact side. Like, they, they don't have Zlatan anymore, so but they've, they've built their team being more uh, sort of in this, in this almost a Portugal-like medium to low block and then trying to run on counters, and we'll see if that works against Germany. I, I still have uh, Germany and Mexico coming through, though... Uh, uh, though um, I do think it's very possible that Germany comes out second out of this group, which would mean, um, which would possibly mean after the other result, but it's possible that they will have a Germany-Brazil matchup in the round of 16. That would be that would be interesting. I mean, I could be wrong here, but I think there was a statistic that said from 1998 or something, the World Cup, the defending champion hasn't come out of the group stage if that defending champion was from Europe. Um I mean, I don't think Germany's going out in the group stage, but that would be that would be epic. That would it epic would be one. I mean, of I guess if you're, if you're if you're a German fan, that would that would suck. But if you're a neutral, that would be yeah. That would be kind of like seeing Brazil lose seven one, and it's just you know, yeah. it's just one of those things you got to see. Well, I'll say that in last year, obviously, last World Cup, obviously, Spain didn't come out, but Spain was in a very very good group with Holland and Chile. So it, at least it was I, in my view, the way my brain rationalized it was. Look, this was a World Cup hangover. They didn't come out, um, and they didn't train in the kind of overwhelming heat and humidity. Spanish players can deal with heat, but humidity kind of floors them. And then um, they just got outplayed by Chile and by by Holland. They were already eliminated by the third game. So, I mean, it. We'll see. I mean, Germany literally now has to get results. Like, basically, has to win against both Korea and uh, and Sweden. But is that really such a big ask for them? I don't think so. So, uh, especially if, for example, uh, tomorrow's I think it's the first game of the day. Sweden Korea is a draw. If there's a draw, then Germany will feel much better about their chances of coming out. If not, then they might be in a little bit more of trouble. So. Um, Moving on to uh, another huge match was um, Brazil-Switzerland. So Brazil came out of the gates incredibly strong against Switzerland. Uh, probably one of the best first 20 minutes I've seen from a Brazil side in almost a decade. Oh. Yeah, so they, they they looked motivated. They looked like they wanted to be out there. I mean, because so essentially with this Brazil team, if, if you didn't watch the game, it was... We've been when Neymar was out, we were used to seeing a Paulinho, Fernandinho, um, Casemiro midfield, and with Neymar back, they put Coutinho back on the left side of that midfield in a three-man midfield, and then you had Neymar and Marcelo on the left. So 
Brazil were exploiting the hell out of that. I mean, if you know, Spain really good. <laughs> kind of had that pattern, but it, it looked good. The first 20 minutes, Brazil had really good passing combinations. I mean, it must be said that Neymar didn't look fully fit, but in the first 20 minutes, well, he looked involved. Okay, but I'll also and, say, and, I'll also say really quickly with Neymar that Switzerland had a very clear, very obvious strategy in this match, which was we're going to come in and we're going to hammer Neymar, and it's not going to be. A little bit. It's not going to be random. It's going to be every single time he touches the ball. If you were like one of the things that I was looking for was how Neymar was going to deal with uh, with with being hit because I knew it was going to be hit when he came out. But I because I was tracking that I was watching very clearly and it was ninety plus percent of the time he had the ball he would end up on the ground uh, and it wasn't yeah. just in like. Uh, 50-50 tackles or whatever. It was. There were occasions where someone would grab his neck and just yank him down. I mean, it was a very. I got to tell you, I was very disgusted by the the kind of cynical way that Switzerland decided to play Neymar. And you know, whatever. I I, I need to get over it a little bit. I understand, but I was really hoping to see a little bit a little bit more of that Jogo Bonito stuff from the Brazilians. And I think the Swiss did have a game plan. They executed it really well. And it was to play a really compact Swiss style, like their classic defense and uh, hit Neymar as hard as they could whenever he had the ball. Yes. So Neymar suffered the most fouls um, of any player, I think since like 1966 or something, he suffered 10 fouls in the game, which is kind of ridiculous. And I think the, the last player to suffer more suffered 11 so you are absolutely right on that. That's not just something you're imagining in your head. <laughs> um, and so I think that definitely played a role because Brazil definitely, especially after the Coutinho goal went in, which is, by the way, a beautiful strike, beautiful strike. from outside the box. Um, classic Coutinho strike. Um, it, 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 I think because because Brazil rely on Neymar so much when, when they play through the left, I think Neymar was feeling the challenges Plus, he wasn't fully fit, and and you could really see that he wasn't himself after that. And Brazil's attacks just started to kind of break down, and they didn't really have an answer for that. They couldn't, they didn't have a plan B. They couldn't really move to the right because Paulinho didn't really offer passing connections in his place on the right side of midfield. So it was a very one-dimensional attack when yeah. they, especially when they went to the right side, and yep. Switzerland kind of figured it out, and then they eventually scored from a set piece, and it was deadlock from there. Yeah, and uh, you get the sense. I mean. Uh, I mean, look, you got the sense that there wasn't any more in it after Switzerland scored, despite the fact that Brazil just was throwing what they had. Uh, and it was because they lacked the level of creativity um, in some of their passing combinations. I was I, One of the things that was really ga- uh, uh, galling to me was in Real Madrid and the way Madrid plays, there's a huge amount of changing the point of attack by long balls across the field. And one of the things that Brazil just simply didn't do, like the only player that was making those big passes was Marcelo. And I can't tell why they Brazil decided that they wanted to try to move it player by player, but it would just always feel like whenever they tried to switch to the point of attack, it would be three passes and then Marcelo would have the ball. But then at that point, Switzerland had managed to re you know reform their defense. And I just felt like one of the things that Brazil really needed to do against a, a defense that stuck in was to continuously shift the point of attack the way that Real Madrid does. And maybe this just speaks to 
the tactical deficiencies of international football, but it just seems so obvious to me that Switzerland had a very clear game plan and a very clear structure. They were very good at, at moving around, but there is one way to attack a structure like that, as Madrid has shown, as other teams that play a lot of players, you know, in, in these that, that get bunkered in like Switzerland does, and it's to move the ball from side to side very quickly and then to make cutting runs on the wings to in order to shuttle the ball back inside. I just and and I really didn't see Brazil doing much of that. Yeah, I think I think you make a really, really great point there. I mean, I think I think Tite didn't come into this game just planning for that because he's relied on kind of those left-sided combinations for so long. And so I think so far in the World Cup, I mean, we've only been one match day in. Um, I, but I think so far we've seen some really big victory for tactics here, which isn't a common thing to see on the international <laughs> stage. And I, I personally enjoy it. I mean, you, everyone knows I'm a tactics guy, but it, it, it just goes to show that teams like Mexico and, and, and teams like Switzerland, when they're – I mean – when you're facing overwhelming favorites to, to go on and win the entire thing, a very cogent, you know, rigorous tactical plan that looks to to exploit the very obvious weaknesses of your opponent can go a long way to giving you a result. And I think that should give hope to smaller teams because it, I mean, because this is international football, there will be deficiencies yeah. that cannot be solved because you cannot go out and buy players. So th- that gives more agency to the coach in a way, even though the coaches don't have enough time to plan, they don't, the squad doesn't have enough cohesion. In some ways, they have a little more agency than they do in in club football, and I'm talking about the the coaches of smaller teams yeah. to build a plan to attack the weaknesses of bigger teams. Yeah, and. And, and we, we haven't necessarily seen that so much in, in a consistent manner in previous World Cups. And I think that makes the World Cup a lot more exciting. We get more potential for upsets. And I hope this theme continues. I agree. I totally agree. And I was, I'm hopeful that uh, federations are taking note of that, not just thinking that these are flukes, that these are actually you know carefully constructed game plans that work. And when they're executed properly, they, they work against even the best teams in the entire world, the best international teams, at least. And it was very close to Australia pulling off a huge upset, maybe bigger than any of the other ones, and drawing France. But, you know, Paul Pogba simply, there was just that little bit of quality at the very end of that mm-hmm. match that allowed for it. But, man, oh, man, um, I, I totally agree. It's been a huge victory for tactics. One last match that I wanted to bring up before we move on to uh, our second subject Uh I want to talk about Croatia, not necessarily Croatia versus Nigeria, but I do think that Croatia versus Nigeria, is, uh, the tactics are very interesting in that game. But specifically, um, actually, let's just do the tactics first. I, one of the things I noticed a lot in Croatia-Nigeria was that the kind of very unknowledgeable uh, soccer, com- the commentary team, um, of uh, <laughs> the Fox, they, they didn't understand why... Um, they kept saying, I don't understand why Nigeria is not using that. I mean, all the classic stuff that people always say about African teams. They, uh, well, why aren't they using their pace and physicality more? Uh, well, there are two things. Um, first of all, the Nigerian Federation's tactics were genuinely stymied by the Croatian tactics. Like the, the way that the uh, Croatian team deployed Modric, Rakitic, and uh, uh, some of their other center midfielders was entirely to uh, prevent 
that type of long ball counterattack, assuming that that's even how Nigeria plays, which is kind of complicated. And Nigeria's tactics, and again, I'm saying tactics because this was a choice Nigeria made, was basically to move the ball through Victor Moses on the right. And Victor Moses isn't actually that good a player. I mean, they have a lot of other strong players on that squad that could have, and they could have used a lot more diversity in their tactics. But essentially all they did was assume Croatia wouldn't be able to handle Victor Moses's dribbling and and running up the right flank and uh, Croatia basically designed an entire formation that allowed for them to compensate for any overloading on that side. It was I thought Croatia did really well to kind of neutralize that particular thing and then Argentina or then then uh, sorry Nigeria didn't know how to respond to it. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. I would say going forward, though, I would like to see a change in Modric's role because yep. th- this has not just been a dismatch. This is a thing which has been with Croatia for years is they have so much midfield talent. They have Rakitic, they have Modric, they have Kovacic. And to- Who didn't start, managers- though. Kovacic yeah, didn't man- start. Yeah, the managers just haven't been able to make it all work. And Kovacic usually sits on the bench because they, they can't really see him starting. I mean, it's too it's too late to change to something like a diamond midfield. But what I would like to see is Modric play higher, yeah. because essentially he's been playing as a defensive midfielder for an extremely long time in this Croatian team. And while he's extremely good at that role, it's a bit of a waste. It's it's a shame, really, yeah, because where he's best is influencing the final third. And I really think Modric can make more of an impact if he's allowed a bit more freedom, like he is at Real Madrid, to influence proceedings. Yeah. And you know, um, one way. Otherwise, he's mainly acting as a distributor and yeah. he's doing a ton of defensive totally. work. I mean, one way to do that would be to actually bring in Kovacic to the place, to the position that they currently have Modric starting and just move Modric up the pitch, literally play a three-man midfield of Kovacic behind Modric and Rakitic, right? Like it's <laughs> it actually to me that that actually to me is uh, some version of that could very well be a, a way that Madrid can structure their midfield in the future going forward. I And we've talked about this before, that Kovacic, I think, is a very interesting option uh, as a kind of interchanging defensive midfielder uh, uh, for Real Madrid. And if, if you, for example, want to rotate Casemiro out, you, I think that, and we've seen Kovacic perform admirably in that position. I will also, I will also add that... Um, Again, shout out Fox Sports for calling Kovacic a quote defender. Oh my god, man! <laughs> I mean, oh, Fox Fox has just been horrible. I mean, there was an article that came out a couple of days before the World Cup that just absolutely trashed Fox Sports. <laughs> and if you haven't read it, you should because it was it was the most brutal article I've ever read. I mean, it was an all-out attack on Fox and Alexi Lalas, and I loved it so much because it was so accurate. And I mean, they've been proven completely right. I mean. Stuart Holden is really the only guy I really like on Fox because he yeah. offers some insight. But otherwise, everyone else has just been really, really bad right. with their insight and all of that. And just I'm extremely defending uh, 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 Perez Navarro and Trujillo, who were the commenta- commentators for the uh, Peru match. That was by far and away the best commentator so far. And the only reason that... You know, and one of the reasons is that they really cared. They showed their passion. They and they were obvious. Like one of the things that really gets me is that they those guys were so clearly well prepared. They knew exactly how not only what players were playing, but also how to pronounce each player's name perfectly. So the Fox commentary team was saying during the Germany, and this was finally got me to to actually watch the games on Telemundo. Was they started calling uh, Mesut Özil. 
Ozil, and among other many, <laughs> many, but like, how do you not know it? And then Kroos, uh, Kroos, and, and like, I get Kroos, um, but Ozil, like, I just couldn't figure it out. So I switched to Telemundo, and you know what the most damning part of it all was? Is that Telemundo was doing essentially perfect acts, like, perfect uh, pronunciations of the German name. They were like, Mesut uh, Ozil. And I was like, what? <laughs> how do you know how to pronounce that and the English people don't? It's ridiculous. Um, so that's, uh, that's basically all I have on the, on the World Cup matches so far. I'm very, by the way, very disappointed that Peru couldn't grab one back. Um, Peru is my second team this World Cup. I love them. As soon as Spain and Portugal are out of their group, I'll be rooting for Portugal. I always root for the Iberians. That's sort of just another part of my, kind of my blood. Um, but also, like, Peru is so much fun, guys. <laughs> I really love them. And it bummed me out that they couldn't get a result in that first game because that, that was the one that they needed to win or get at least get a draw on if they were going to have any hope of, of moving forward. And they forward. missed a penalty. They missed a penalty. It was, it was it's one of those things you can always tell when someone is about to miss a penalty if they take a huge run up, like they sprint at the, the ball. The dude did the, the, the dude did the Zaza run up. If you're gonna do that run up, you're gonna miss. Yeah, I and, mean, I people should have learned by now. Yeah, and you know who? I mean, Modric's penalty was absolute perfection for me. That was the best penalty kick uh, of the. I mean, Cristiano's was fantastic. He hit it, but one of the things that Cristiano does is that he doesn't always place it perfectly, but he has enough power in his leg and enough confidence in himself that he can smash it. But he's smashing it with basically perfect precision, so it doesn't need to go. Perfect perfectly next to the post. Modric, what he did was he, he he decided not to smash it, but hit it hard enough and within six inches of that post, and no keeper in the world is making that save. It's just not. So uh, I, I just, it kind of broke my heart looking at the Modric penalty and being like, man, two, you only need two steps if you're going to hit a penalty. You really don't need a long run up. Um, so that's sort of that. Uh, all right, do you want to go on? We have, so let's talk a little bit, Om, now about why we're conflicted. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's not just that FIFA itself is a comically corrupt organization that has blood on its hands. It's also that there have been, I mean, the the simple decision to host the World Cup in Russia has brought up a lot of, you know, political problems and, and problems of morality. So, for example, um, uh, Russia is a country that's famously bad for gay people uh, and minorities. Mm-hmm. So... So and, and this is an issue because it's not something we can dodge, right? Because there's people that are like, you know, keep politics out of sports or whatever. I mean, this is part of sports. This is the World Cup. This is these are fans being affected. So, for example, a gay couple, a gay French couple, were brutally attacked at, at the World Cup. Um, a couple a couple hours or so before the opening game between Russia and Saudi Arabia, and they and and, and they were sent to the hospital. It, it was so bad, and they were attacked in Saint Petersburg, and. People warned. People warned FIFA years before they decided to select Russia that this is dangerous because there were groups openly talking about how they were going to hunt down gay, um, gay couples, gay people who came to the World Cup because they they essentially see them as subhuman. This is the issue, right? Because if this if this game is supposed to be for everyone, right? Literally everyone. It's a global game. It's the World Cup. Absolutely everyone should be able to enjoy it in the same manner. How is that possible when you hold it? in a place like this, which very clearly sees a large portion of the world's population as subhuman and undeserving of enjoying the, the pleasures of football like the rest of us. Right. And so 
in that, addition, that is a huge problem. And in addition, they're they're a regime that openly supports the uh, a, a Chechen warlord who's throwing gay gay people in concentration camps. And you can look that up. That's also a real thing that's going on. And yeah, you know, and- it, we also had an incident um, a couple of days ago where a uh, a man in and I can't remember which city it was, but took his his car and drove it into a group of people who were Mexicans. And it's not clear if it was a um, exactly what was going on, but it does seem pretty likely that there was a there was a hate motivated aspect to that. You don't just smash a car into people uh, f- uh, for no reason. Yeah, and also there was a UK gay rights activist who was arrested in Moscow, uh, Moscow, sorry, and he was he was protesting the 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 acts in Chechnya, like you mentioned before. So I mean, it's just. It's just a question of is this game for everyone? Because basically, essentially, what the Bladder era supposedly started, I mean, this was the propaganda he was spreading, was I'm spreading this game all over the world to countries. I'm placing the World Cup in countries like South Africa, you know, because this is a world game. It shouldn't just be held in, in the traditional powerhouse countries. This game is for everyone. Well, if this game is really for everyone, then then should we host it in a place like Russia, which has made very overt statements about how this game is not for everyone, how everyone is not welcome. Right. And in a very violent way as well, as I just mentioned before. And next we have a World Cup in Qatar, uh, where it, it, it's illegal to be gay, where there were horrible human rights abuses to build to build the stadiums. And I mean, this is kind of a question we have every World Cup. I mean, what we're talking about right right now is very specific to this instance, but there are issues with hosting the World Cup in Brazil. And it's something you cannot ignore because every World Cup, it comes up. And it's something we need to address head on. I'm not, I, I personally do not believe, you know, the, the journalism world at large has done the greatest job of covering this so far. We, I mean, because... It's sort of understandable, right? I mean, this is about having fun, right? And people don't want it to be ruined. But this is just a reality because it is being ruined for so many fans across the world. And it's something we have to address head on. I wish more prominent journalists than us would step up about it more. Um, And it took a couple tweets that I saw today kind of detailing all these things to wake me up and say, hey, I'd kind of been ignoring that too when I talked about it before the World Cup. And it's just sad. And it's something FIFA could have addressed. Yeah. FIFA was warned. They weren't blind about this, and this is where we are. No, and instead of uh, of addressing it, and there are – and to the people who say, well, what is FIFA supposed to do? Actually, there are tons of things FIFA can do. It's not that complicated. For example, FIFA literally uh, – uh, in, in 2010, FIFA and, – and then it eventually did – FIFA threatened to sanction the Nigerian Football Federation because they were withholding bonus payments to their players after they did such a quote-unquote bad job in the World Cup. Well, I mean, that was the same World Cup in 2010 where the North Korean, uh, uh, you know, North North Korea had such a bad showing that Kim Jong-il at that point sent the coach to a goddamn work camp. And FIFA had nothing to say about that. I mean, FIFA are basically very happy to involve themselves in a country's politics uh, when it is convenient and when they feel like they can get away with it. But when it's a country where, like, if you looked at the first game of the World Cup was between two really... I mean, really, really bad regimes, folks. It was between uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia. And there was this cut to a number of times uh, Vladimir Putin sitting with Yanni Infantino and uh, 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 Prince Mohammed bin Salman of, uh, of Saudi Arabia. So <laughs> this is this is not like simply not a 
an I mean, it's an avenue where we do, and it's a, we should be, and we should be constantly talking about it and criticizing FIFA and understand ourselves that this isn't just some sort of thing that we can push to the side. But we should be morally and 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 ethically conflicted about about this. Look, it's there's this great segment on on John Oliver, his show, where I'm just going to quickly uh, I'm going to quickly cut in some of the audio. I would like to talk to you about the sausage principle. Uh, the theory that says, if you love something, never find out how it was made. Well, tonight, I would like to show you my sausage. Wait, 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 wait. This is my sausage. The 2014 FIFA World Cup. Oh, my God! <laughs> OK, the World Cup starts this week, and I am both excited and extremely conflicted about it. Now, I know, in America, soccer is something you pick your ten-year-old daughter up from. But, <laughs> but for me and everyone else on Earth, it's a little more important. Soccer had become Brazil's religion. In Colombia, soccer was a religion. Football is a religion here. Soccer or football, like we say, <laughs> it's a religion. Yeah, and they're not exaggerating. When David Beckham got a tattoo of Jesus, the response of most soccer fans was, oh, that, that's huge for Jesus. That's, that's a big deal for him. Here's, here's my conflict. The World Cup is one of my favourite things, but it's organised by these guys. FIFA. You either know it as the Fédération Internationale de Football Association, or that soccer video game you have. But for American viewers who may never have encountered them, FIFA is a comically grotesque organisation. In fact, telling someone about the inner workings of FIFA for the first time is a bit like showing someone two girls one cup. You, you do it mainly so you can watch the horrified expression on people's faces. Because let's start where FIFA's current World Cup is about to take place, Brazil. Brazilians are excited about everything. This is how they celebrate the fact that it's just about to be Lent. They, <laughs> they love the concept of giving up chocolate temporarily. <laughs> They're also the biggest soccer fans on Earth, so they must be thrilled at the prospect of hosting the World Cup. There's been months of unrest in some of the city's favelas, or slums, with clashes between police and residents. Here, people demonstrated against Brazil holding the World Cup. That makes no sense. Why would you be unhappy hosting the thing that you love the most in all the world? The government has spent more than $11 billion getting ready. The United States team will play its second game here in the city of Manaus in this brand new $270 million stadium. Manaus is so remote that it's almost impossible to reach by car, which is why officials had to have the stadium materials brought in by boat, shipped across the Atlantic from Portugal, and up the Amazon River. OK, that does seem like a waste of money, especially when you consider that that stadium is only going to be used for four World Cup games. There's also no team in Manaus that can fill it afterwards, at which point it becomes the world's most expensive bird toilet. <laughs> no wonder Brazilians are so upset, especially when you think about what they are actually getting in return. Well, and they're going to make money as well as, as well, the money they're spending. Actually, FIFA yes. makes the money. This is where the controversy is. The country usually doesn't make money. FIFA, the organization of the World Cup, is who makes the money. 
Yeah, Brazil, let me put this in terms you might understand. Think of money as pubic hair and FIFA as wax. <laughs> oh, they're going to be all over you during the World Cup, but when they go, they're taking all the money with them, <laughs> including some from places you didn't even know you had any money. <laughs> leaving you teary-eyed, going, Jesus, what happened here? What, what happened? I'm never doing this again. Because here are FIFA's tax demands for prospective host countries. It is FIFA and its FIFA subsidiaries that are fully exempt from any tax whatsoever levied at whatever level, state level, municipality level, all sorts of taxes, consumption taxes, income taxes, you name it, it's all exempt. That's right. By Brazil's own estimates, they're allowing FIFA to forego $250 million in taxes. Somewhere, Wesley Snipes is going, so soccer was the answer. <laughs> oh, God. It seems so obvious now. Now, now, FIFA says they leave a lot behind, which they do, like new laws. Because, you see, once upon a time, Brazil did this. In 2003, the Brazilian government banned alcohol from stadiums because of the enormously high death rate amongst fans. Well, that seems like a good idea. <laughs> Potentially life-saving, even. The only problem is, Budweiser is one of FIFA's key sponsors, and they sell a product they reflexively insist on calling beer. <laughs> and FIFA seemed anxious to protect Budweiser from a law designed to protect people, which is why FIFA Secretary-General went to Brazil with a simple message. I'm sorry to say, and maybe I look a bit arrogant, but that's something we'll not negotiate. I mean, there will be, and there must be, as part of the, of the law, the fact that we have the right to sell beer. Right, so, as you, as you could hear there, uh, John Oliver talks, right, he says, he says that joke about how uh, if you love you know, sausage, you should never see how it's made. Well, this is exactly that, right? This is, as he says, his sausage. <laughs> and this is my mm -hmm. sausage. This is our sausage. And it's almost reprehensible and, and not, and kind of dumb of us not to just get involved and, and think about exactly how the sausage is made with respect to this competition that we all love. And also, the, I mean, you know, there's nothing obviously that can be done now about the World Cup being hosted in Russia. But you know, the, I forgot to mention that there were homophobic chants within particular um, within particular uh, fan bases right. uh, that came to stadiums, prepared homophobic chants, and they shouted them. There are very harsh fines that can be doled out for that. You can hold federations responsible, yeah. and, and when you do, when federations do get fined a severe amount, like we've seen you know, ridiculous amounts of fines for really stupid shit. And then you can compare it to some of the fines handed out for racism. And it's just almost comical how FIFA doesn't seem to care about any of this stuff. I mean, they're literally not doing anything in regard to this. And I think that's just what right. annoys me the most. I mean, there are there are concrete measures, like you said, that can be taken, and they just couldn't care less. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, this isn't new. Obviously, FIFA doesn't give a shit about giving the making the game open for everyone, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't give about it. You know, right. FIFA have openly said this is their standard. This is what we want to do, and you know, we should do our best to to to, to hold them to it. And Really, that's more on us. That's more on journalists, which is why I said I think journal journalism needs to do a bit better job on this. But you know, I think I think we're 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 taking a, a step here at least. You know, by informing our our base about this, and hopefully, it'll it'll spark dis discussion. We can move to some degree of of holding FIFA accountable for this because if 
if if we don't do this as a collective, we're just going to keep seeing this over and over again. Yeah, I agree. Um, Okay, I think that rounds out that section. We're going to quickly take your questions. And then again, remember, I'm going to be splicing in about five minutes of my own chat um, with uh, uh, some journalists um, on the radio about Spain and about Real Madrid's future. Um, So Blake Brown asks us, um, wow, what a first game for Spain. Was this a preview of what we could see from Isco being the featured player next year for Madrid? So um, I think this this gets it to a lot of a lot of people have been, you know, kind of saying this this basic uh, formulation of this question, which is this. Lopetegui has gotten some really all-timer performances out of Isco. So people are kind of saying, look, is, is Isco bringing Lopetegui in going to make Isco kind of finally take that next step into the consistent superstar role that I think he, I personally think he's one, just one tiny step short of. So I don't want to say no, because I think the truth is, is that no one can say definitively simply because international football is so incredibly different from club football. Yeah. I mean, I think Lopetegui's relationship with Isco definitely helps. They obviously like each other. And I think Lopetegui will make an effort to make Isco one of his main guys in the team. But it's it, it's so different. Like the tactics are so different in international football. A lot of times there are no tactics. You know, there's a certain level of fluidity that that allows a team like Spain to thrive with all their technically gifted players that would allow Isco to take advantage of that situation. I mean, it there's no guarantee that this transfer is over. I mean, we kind of saw it with Van Hall and Robin Van Persie and Memphis Depay. Um, there have been other cases as well where where there were really great relationships and performances and the coach knew how to get the best out of a player on the international stage. And then it didn't transfer to a totally different context in in, in club football where the tactical structures are far more rigorous. Teams are better prepared. The way you have to play changes a little bit. So, you know, like I said, again, I don't want to say no, because the truth is I really don't know, but I would pump the brakes on that excitement just a little bit yeah. because I think there's a lot of uncertainty there. I totally agree. And I, I will also add that if you go back and listen to Keon's uh, really fantastic chat with one of my favorite authors, Phil Ball, um, Phil says a bunch of stuff basically along this vein, that Lopetegui is ultimately a professional and a good coach and a good man manager. And so what he's going to do is he's going to make the best out of what he has. He's not going to favor Isco. He's not going to favor the Spanish players. Mm-hmm. He's going to make a team that he thinks is going to produce the best results. And that could involve playing Isco in, in kind of this featured role. But he's not going to like give up on Bale or, or Ronaldo or something just because he wants to feature Isco more. That's just simply not the way this is going to go. And if you're mm-hmm. looking for that to happen, then you're going to be disappointed. That's a very good point. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think it's important to to remember that he he does come into to the, the job with the support of a number of the players, which is a really good thing. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he is going to just kind of reproduce the Spanish lineups or whatever just to get Isco involved. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about about everything. I'm, I mean, I think that before we see anything happen, we should be cautiously optimistic. We, I don't have any reason to necessarily think that he's going to be a bad coach or whatever. Um, Anthony Lombardi asks us, um, wow, what a cup so far for Real Madrid players. Ronaldo is leading in goals, and I haven't watched one Madrid player play badly so far. Let's say Ronaldo scores the most goals and is the best player. What would Florentino do? Buy the second best player? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, I don't know. 
um, exactly what's going to happen. But we'll, I mean, again, I've been saying all year um, that Madrid is going to make some transfer decisions based on the World Cup. And that hasn't always been the best strategy, but it uh-huh. did work well with Tony Kroos, for example, who they bought after a very good World Cup. Um, if you think, so he can, Anthony continues, if you don't think Ronaldo will end up with the most goals slash being the best player, then who do you guys think will end up being the best player of the tournament slash most goals? That's a very difficult question. That is um, a crazy difficult question after we haven't even seen all the first round games. I'm still going to, I'm still going to go with Neymar. I mean, he, he didn't have the greatest game, yeah. but Neymar is unreal on the international stage. I mean, I would very strongly say, I mean, this could be my hot take for the podcast, that on the international stage, there is no player better than Neymar. Not Ronaldo, not Messi, no one. I mean, you look at his record with Brazil and his goal per game ratio, I mean, it's insane. He blows everyone out of the water. He's consistently performed in all tournaments for Brazil. I mean, this was it was really disappointing to see him not perform this time because it's so rare to not see him perform so Switzerland literally tried to mark him out of the game. So. Yeah. So if so if if the ref doesn't let other teams attempt to kill Neymar and Neymar <laughs> gets a little bit of his fitness back, I mean the dude is a boss. I mean he he just he just really understands how to play with every with everyone with with the personnel that he has on the on the field and he, yeah. he knows how to raise his game because he knows the expectation that is placed on him. He knows everyone mm-hmm. sees him as the next Ronaldo, the next Ronaldinho, the next Pele, and he rises to that. So if it's not Ronaldo, I think Neymar is a fairly safe bet. Yeah, I agree. I think he's a safe bet. I think a more out there bet, and we haven't seen him play yet, but I I think Uh, that everything that people have said so far about his training um, suggests that Eden Hazard, this might be uh, his tournament. If he really puts everything... I thought you were going to say Salah. Salah, yeah. No, it it doesn't seem likely that he's even going to come out of the group, so... Um, so yeah, I, uh, I would say, I, I think that if you, if you were a betting man, you could get some odds. It might be Azard just because that this Belgium team actually is not getting enough buzz. They are really stacked and Azard by all accounts is playing out of his mind and he really could come in and be the man of this tournament. And if, and if he is, um, I, I, I mean, Madrid has been flirting with him forever. It could be the summer that he that they finally go get him. But uh, yeah, I think that that may be my 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 choice. And I think there's another option which we're we're kind of underselling, which is Harry Kane, who is the best striker mm-hmm. that England has produced since Wayne. Or no, sorry, not Wayne Rooney. He's better than Wayne Rooney. He's the best striker England has produced. <laughs> that's not. A, I maybe a hot take, but I think I'm very confident he's the best striker England's produced since Michael Owen. And I, I don't know about that. Wayne Rooney was pretty damn good, but I'd have to think about that one. <laughs> uh, so if he, I mean, if he catches fire, that could be that could also be huge for them. They, I don't, I wouldn't be shocked if we saw England in the semifinals either. Um, it, it just needs all of their their pieces need to work together. Uh, so let's see. Um, Sajid Riaz um, asks us: Isco to be third best player in the world under Lopetegui. Um, the question is, do you think that Lopetegui can propel Isco into becoming the third best player in the world after Ronaldo and Messi? Um, I mean, he could. Right? I mean, like, he could. Pretty much the response we gave earlier yeah. um, pretty much applies here. I mean, it's so hard to say. I mean, even if Isco is really finds his feet 
under Lopetegui at Real, I wouldn't say he becomes the third best player in the world. I mean, I certainly hope that would happen, but I don't know if that's his ceiling. I think, I think top ten is like I, that's fantastic. I mean, yeah. I think that's where Isco's ceiling is. But you know, if he becomes third best player in the world, that would be incredible. I mean, top um, five for me. Like I could see him like sneaking up into that top five yeah. conversation, but I, I don't think. Yeah. I, there's a lot of people tough because even with Salah's season, I think just based on pure ability, I think Neymar is the third, comfortably the third yeah. best player in the world. If he wasn't injured, for me, he would be up there. And I don't think with CR7 and Messi continually declining with age, I don't think anyone's replacing Neymar. Yeah. Um, um, what is the is a, he continues? What is the biggest issue we need to rectify to avoid another La Liga disappointment? Um, he says it's the you need to find creative ways to penetrate teams who play like Iceland. <laughs> um, so I I think the the number one issue that we need to uh, that we need to fix uh, is not a personnel one, and I think it's more of a motivational one. Uh, one of the things that we saw in the in the double season was that Zidane managed to motivate the players so that they would come out and and never leave any game for dead and you know we saw how many games how many points did madrid rescue by goals in minute 85 plus right yeah it was ridiculous i i mean i would i think yeah i think you cannot ignore the mental aspect of of our early collapse and the 17 18 season i think tactically is where we can really improve the most i mean i think we need to be careful about the transfers we make. I mean, I think transfers yeah. would be extremely important because we're transitioning away from an older core. But I think tactically, uh, we need to move back to to a slightly more structured system that that looks so. So I think Sajid is right when he talks about we need to find more creative ways to penetrate teams. I don't think that's the number one issue, but that would be fixed with with better offense structure, with better occupation of 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 of, of the spaces in between the lines, with not having Casemiro play as a number ten for us. Um, but I think most of all, we need to 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 be, to move back to some kind of structure, an overarching philosophy that obviously will be flexible but something that 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 helps create this kind of continuity a little bit because we need to stop being so bad against counterattacks. i mean we were always kind of weak against it but last season kind of took it to a new extreme and we we, we and it, it had a lot to do with the fact that we were lacking structure and possession when we lost the ball we were not adequately prepared to counter press or move back into shape to to recover the ball and that killed us in a ton of games so yeah. i think that would be the most important thing to avoid a collapse in la liga because la liga is about consistency yep. and that starts kind of with the tactical structure that you have um but yeah, I mean, I'd agree. I think Isco can play a big role. I see no reason not to give Isco a bigger role, considering the older core is, is kind yeah. of, if not phased out, they're obviously declining a and little they need, bit. They need to be rotated if you want them, like the core, to be fresh for a, a yeah. run in the in the spring. And th- let's let's also remember that the spring is also when La Liga has won and lost. So, like, as long as Madrid can keep it, you know, reasonable up until then, if they're ready to peak at that exact moment, then they can make a run. They've done. They've closed gaps against Barcelona over the last few years in that period of time. And so, if they can continue to to have that fitness, then I, I feel pretty pretty good about it. Um. Yeah. Okay, last two questions. They're both from a guy called Chris G, my man. Um, so first, uh, they're both transfer-related, so we can answer them pretty quickly. Would you take Alisson over Navas if these rumors about true about the $70 million bid? I, I would. I think Alisson 
is a fantastic player. I mean, I think as a shot stopper, I am not completely sure of whether I could name him as, as a very elite shot stopper. I think he's quite good. But I think what he really gives you is, is brilliance on the ball, which is becoming more and more important in the game. I mean, I think he's a very good shot stopper, but what he can... He can he can take the ball and split defenses with his passes in in a way similar to Ederson. I mean, he's not as good, but that's kind of the mold of goalkeeper that he is, and that is very valuable. I think it's something that Navas is kind of weak in, um, and it's it's something that's needed, especially if we're assuming Lopetegui wants to come in and play his very kind yeah. of dogmatic short passing style out from the back which he even maintained with his short up stints then a, a goalkeeper like him would would definitely help um i agree I, I, but you know i i'm i'm open to being convinced otherwise i still need to do more research on him so you know do you do your own research as yeah. well for just taking my opinions at face value yeah i agree i mean I, I don't know who is going to be in goal for Real Madrid next season. That is one of the biggest questions on the team sheet, just because it seems clear to me that um, Florentino is looking to make a change. Uh, I If it were me, I would really hope that he doesn't just jettison Kaler. Kaler is a consummate team player. I think he'd be willing to come in and, and be the kind of Copa del Rey keeper if, if, if you know, the kind of veteran presence who's working with a younger player. Um, if Florentino goes out and gets someone like De Gea, which, again, it seems possible. He There's been this long-term flirtation. Lopetegui and De Gea have a very good relationship dating back to the U19s and U21s. I mean, that wouldn't shock me. Alisson would be a great choice, I think, also. Um, and I'd also be interested in seeing if he goes out. And very possible, again, um, Lopetegui coached Kepa at those at those ages. It's possible he goes out and gets Kepa, despite the kind of you know infuriating nature of going what going out and getting Kepa would mean, right? If you think about it, um, like it would mean that they yeah, spent because a we huge could have gotten him in the winter for essentially pennies on the dollar. So, but yeah, I think any of those are possibilities, and there's also a possibility that somehow another keeper comes into the mix that I hadn't previously even thought about. So. Those are all options at the keeper position. I can't tell you which is going to happen. Uh, I think personally, um, I, it's not my money. So again, I and Madrid are, are swimming in it right now without having made big acquisitions. So if they decide they want to drop the you know eighty million, ninety million to get the hair, then maybe they maybe they go do that. But um, I'd be okay. I mean, obviously, I'd be okay with that because he. Despite like one or t- and by the way, to the people who are like tweeting at me <laughs> about like, oh, do you? Th- how can you think De Gea is the best in the world after his mistake? It's like you know that Messi misses like you know anyone fucking Babe Ruth got you know struck out occasionally. Like it, it happens. Like people make mistakes and like that that has nothing. It's an, it's a it's a one time occurrence. Like. If you, you have to look at the kind of overall body of work, and the overall body of work from De Gea shows that he he is the best in the world, at least last season with Neuer out. Neuer, uh, I think, put in a pretty strong effort against uh, uh, Mexico today, so he looks to be back. Um, next question from Chris. Um, what do you guys think of the Rodrigo signing? Um, I don't like that we label these players the new Neymar, Cristiano, or Messi. I feel like that's a lot of unnecessary pressure. Um yeah, so just just to get everyone up to date, Real Madrid went out and got Brazilian wonderkind um, uh, Rodrigo from I think Santos. 
uh, for forty million. Very similar to the Vinicius signing. Rodrigo has a huge amount of upside. A lot of projection. People really love him. He's been playing first division football in Brazil already. He's uh, seventeen, so he won't make it to Madrid until next season. Um, I so here's what I think of him, and just tell me if you if you disagree. My feeling is the way to beat this kind of ridiculous and, and insane inflated market is to try to figure out how to um, get assets that have uh, the you know how to get players that are going to improve and and de- develop into potential hundred hundred fifty million euro players, right? And you have to get them while they no one thinks that that's what their value is. And if you have to pay a little bit more now to get a player who you see, uh, you know, and obviously there's a risk involved here, but that you see evolving into that type of player, I think, I think that's actually a really smart strategy, and I, I really like that. I mean, Madrid did that with Kovacic, they did it with Vinicius, they've done it with other people, like. You and you know with Savaius, you get players at a bargain, and then you work with them, and hopefully they develop into the talent that that you expect from them. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that completely. Um, I don't have too much to add because I I'm honest, like I, I haven't paid attention to Rodrigo. I, I didn't even know who he was until we signed him. Um, but but I will agree with what you said there. Um, and the fact that it, it's unnecessary pressure to label, label these kind of guys the new Neymar, Ronaldo, and Messi, but that's just what the media does. But I also, mean, if you look they, at if you look at some of the most successful signings in Madrid's recent history, um, Marcelo and Higuain, they were both similar to like they both came in the winter, so that's a little different. But they were both kids, like real children, signed out of uh, South America. Obviously, Higuain was at River Plate, and Marcelo was at Santos, and. They barely had played even, but everyone, you know, Madrid trusted in their scouts and in their development, you know, the people that they that they have over there who are saying, look, these guys are the real deal. So they went ahead and got them and brought them in. And it took a couple of years before that they were really showed who, who they are, but they developed into Marcelo, arguably the best left back ever. And then Higuain, who's been a, a, a goal-scoring monster for years. Uh, yeah, and then... I also quickly want to add to that. I mean, I could be wrong because I have no evidence for this, but I think part of the reason we're doing this with exciting young Brazilian wingers is because we don't want to lose out on a chance to to get the new Neymar. Um, yeah, yeah. Because I I feel like that really hurt Madrid because there lots of rumors that Real Madrid were about to sign him. We had it all wrapped up, and then that whole the whole shenanigans with his dad and Barca came in. Essentially, we lost a player who played a massive role in 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 winning the the treble in fourteen fifteen, you know, and then the two more league titles. Yeah, or, I agree. Or another league, a lo- another league title. Sorry, and you know that that hurt us. And if yeah. Neymar had stayed with Barcelona for longer, the the post Messi era wouldn't have looked so bad. Yeah. And now there's rumors we're going to get Neymar back because we kind of have this love affair with him. So I think that's part of the reason we don't want to let Barcelona get their hands on the next next hot thing from Brazil. Um, but you know, I could be wrong. I mean, just, that's just a hunch. I think you're, you're not, you're a hundred percent right. You, like, I think you can't under, you know, uh, I think you can't undervalue or, or overvalue the, uh, 
impact that losing out on Neymar had on Real Madrid. And and the more we learn about it, the more there was probably fraud and there was probably backhanded dealings. And Neymar's dad, I mean, a big part of the reason Neymar went to Barcelona over Real Madrid wasn't about Neymar. Like he, I mean, the very fact that he would ever come to Real Madrid indicates to me that after playing for Barcelona, coming to Real Madrid means that you always sort of wanted to play for Real Madrid, but someone talked to you into playing for Barcelona. And like, I actually kind of get that. Like my all the indications that summer, because I was following it really closely. I was talking to Portuguese experts about or Brazilian experts about this. Was that he himself uh, was always a Real Madrid fan, uh, but his father was neg- negotiating with Barcelona, and Barcelona. I mean, if you actually tabulate the cost of that signing, it was one of the highest ever, if not the highest ever at the time, and that's because about half of it went directly into the pockets of Neymar's father. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Madrid it was, doesn't it was some real shady shit, and obviously Real Madrid was not going to be able to top that. Yeah. Um, um, all right. Well, so that that was a great show. Ohm, thanks so much for coming on. Um, we'll be back uh, this week with your Patreon VIP shows. Um, I'm sure Keon has people lined up. If not, I will be back with Keon to chat. Um, and if nothing else, uh, Ohm, uh, it's been great chatting. We'll uh, see you next weekend. See you as well. Hala Madrid. Hala Madrid. My chick from Bella, my whip from Germany, I'm cooler than LL. I'm sipping on Bella, my chick from Bella, my whip from Germany, I'm cooler than LL. I clap my nigga like Patty Cake. I clap my nigga like Patty Cake. I'm swagging, I got flavor, I got song, call me Ragu. I love my baby girl, pussy ball, call her Caillou. I clap my nigga like Patty Cake. Yeah, that a wee, I'm about to grab the rave. Baby girl, skeet all on her face I got a feeling that the day gonna be a fantastic day I'm getting tired of that role, I think I want petite Felicia It's all I win or you lose because I want to self-defeat And everybody wanna have the songs, well I got the recipe I'm sipping on Bella cause it made me feel like I'm on SEC I love my baby when I come home, I be rubbing on her feet And she be always in my chest, she hate when I be in the streets My real taller than my son, about to drop another one You think a nigga ain't a man the way I
Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions. Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile. The most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus $30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate.